aftermath, Blaise Zabini. The Slytherin common room could be accurately and precisely described as a re-militarized zone. The moment you stepped through the portrait hole, you would see that the left half of the room was definitely not talking to the right half, and vice versa. It was very clear. It did not need to be explained to anyone that you did not have the option of not taking sides. At a table in the exact middle of the room, Blaise Zabini sat by himself, smirking as he did his homework. He had a reputation now, and meant to keep it. Aftermath Daphne Greengrass and Tracy Davis You doing anything interesting today? said Tracy. Nope, said Daphne. Aftermath, Harry Potter If you went high enough in Hogwarts, you didn't see many other people around. Just corridors and windows and staircases and the occasional portrait, and now and then some interesting sight, such as a bronze statue of a furry creature like a small child holding a peculiar flat spear. If you went high enough in Hogwarts, you didn't see many other people around, which suited Harry. There were much worse places to be trapped, Harry supposed. In fact, you probably couldn't think of anywhere better to be trapped than an ancient castle with a fractal ever-changing structure that meant you couldn't ever run out of places to explore, full of interesting people and interesting books and incredibly important knowledge unknown to muggle science. If Harry hadn't been told that he couldn't leave, he probably would have jumped at the chance to spend more time in Hogwarts. He would have plotted and connived to get it. Hogwarts was literally optimal, not in all the realms of possibility maybe, but certainly on the real planet Earth. It was the maximum fun location. How could the castle and its grounds seem so much smaller, so much more confining? How could the rest of the world become so much more interesting and important? The instant Harry had been told that he wasn't allowed to leave. He'd spent months here and hadn't felt claustrophobic then. You know the research on this, observed some part of himself. It's just standard scarcity effects. Like that time, as soon as a country outlawed phosphate detergents, people who'd never cared before drove to the next county in order to buy huge loads of phosphate detergent, and surveys showed that they rated phosphate detergents as gentler and more effective and even easier pouring. And if you give two-year-olds a choice between a toy in the open and one protected by a barrier they can go around, they'll ignore the toy in the open and go for the one behind the barrier. Salespeople know that they can sell things just by telling the customer it might not be available. It was all in Caldini's book, Influence. Everything you're feeling right now. The grass is always greener on the other side. That's not allowed. If Harry hadn't been told that he couldn't leave, 
he probably would have jumped at the chance to stay at Hogwarts over the summer. But not the rest of his life. That was sort of the problem, really. Who knew whether there was still a Dark Lord Voldemort for him to defeat? Who knew whether he who must not be named still existed outside of the imagination of a possibly not just pretending to be crazy old wizard? Lord Voldemort's body had been found burned to a crisp. There couldn't really be such things as souls. How could Lord Voldemort still be alive? How did Dumbledore know that he was alive? And if there wasn't a Dark Lord, Harry couldn't defeat him, and he would be trapped in Hogwarts forever. Maybe he would be legally allowed to escape after he graduated his seventh year. Six years and four months and three weeks from now. It wasn't that long as length of time went, it only seemed like long enough for protons to decay. Only it wasn't just that. It wasn't just Harry's freedom that was at stake. The headmaster of Hogwarts, the chief warlock of the Wizengamot, the supreme mugwump of the International Confederation of Wizards, was quietly sounding the alarm. A false alarm. A false alarm which Harry had triggered. You know, said the part of him that refined his skills, didn't you sort of ponder once how every different profession has a different way to be excellent? How an excellent teacher isn't like an excellent plumber, but they all have in common certain methods of not being stupid and that one of the most important such techniques is to face up to your little mistakes before they turn into big mistakes. Although this already seemed to qualify as a big mistake, actually. The point being, said his inner monitor, it's getting worse literally by the minute. The way spies turn people is, they get them to commit a little sin, and then they use the little sin to blackmail them into a bigger sin, and then they use that sin to make them do even bigger things, and then the blackmailer owns their soul. Didn't you once think about how the person being blackmailed, if they could foresee the whole path, would just decide to take the punch on the first step, take the hit of exposing that first sin, didn't you decide that you would do that if anyone ever tried to blackmail you into doing something major in order to conceal something little? Do you see the similarity here, Harry James Potter Evans Verris? Only it wasn't little. It already wasn't little. There would be a lot of very powerful people extremely angry at Harry. Not just for the false alarm, but for freeing Bellatrix from Azkaban. If the Dark Lord did exist and did come after him later, that war might already be lost. You don't think they'll be impressed by your honesty and rationality and foresight in stopping this before it snowballs even further? Harry did not, in fact, think this. 
and after a moment's reflection, whichever part of himself he was talking to had to agree that this was absurdly optimistic. His wandering feet took him near an open window, and Harry went over and leaned his arms on the ledge, and stared down at the grounds of Hogwarts from high above. Brown that was barren trees, yellow that was dead grass, ice-coloured ice that was frozen creeks and frozen streams. Whichever school official had dubbed it the Forbidden Forest really hadn't understood marketing. The name just made you want to go there even more. The sun was sinking in the sky, for Harry had been thinking for some hours now, thinking mostly the same thoughts over and over, but with key differences each time, like his thoughts were not going in circles, but climbing a spiral, or descending it. He still couldn't believe that he'd gone through the entire thing with Azkaban. He'd switched off his Patronus before it took all his life. He'd stunned an aura. He'd figured out how to hide Bella from the Dementors. He'd faced down twelve Dementors and scared them away. He'd invented the rocket-assisted broomstick and ridden it. He'd gone through the entire thing without ever once rallying himself by thinking, I have to do this because I promised Hermione I'd come back from lunch. It felt like an irrevocably missed opportunity, like having done it wrong that time, he'd never be able to get it right no matter what sort of challenge he faced next time, or what promise he made. Because then he would just be doing it awkwardly and deliberately to make up for having missed it the first time around, instead of making the heroic declarations he could have made if he'd remembered his promise to Hermione. Like... That one wrong turn was irrevocable. You only got one chance. Had to do it right on the first try. He should have remembered that promise to Hermione before going to Azkaban. Why had he decided to do that again? My working hypothesis is that you're stupid, said Hufflepuff. That is not a useful fault analysis thought Harry. If you want a little more detail, said Hufflepuff, the defense professor of Hogwarts was all like, let's get Bellatrix Black out of Azkaban, and you were like, okay. Hold on, that's not fair. Hey, said Hufflepuff, notice how once you're all the way up here and the individual trees sort of blur together, you can actually see the shape of the forest. Why had he done it? Not because of any cost-benefit calculation, that was for sure. He'd been too embarrassed to pull out a sheet of paper and start calculating expected utilities. He'd worried that Professor Quirrell would stop respecting him if he said no, or even hesitated too much to help a maiden in distress. He'd thought, somewhere deep inside him, that if your mysterious teacher offered you the first mission, the first chance, the call to adventure, and you said no, then your mysterious teacher walked away from you in disgust and you never got another chance to be a hero. Yeah, that had been it. 
In retrospect, that had been it. He'd gone and started thinking his life had a plot, and here was a plot twist, as opposed to, oh, say, here was a proposal to break Bellatrix Black out of Azkaban. That had been the true and original reason for the decision in the split second where it had been made. His brain perceptually recognizing the narrative where he said no as dissonant. And when you thought about it, that wasn't a rational way to make decisions. Professor Quirrell's ulterior motive to obtain the last remains of Slytherin's lost lore before Bellatrix died and it was irrevocably forgotten, seemed impressively sane by comparison. A benefit commensurate with what had appeared at the time as a small risk. It didn't seem fair. It didn't seem fair that this was what happened if he lost his grip on his rationality for just a tiny fraction of a second. The tiny fraction of a second required for his brain to decide to be more comfortable with yes arguments than no arguments during the discussion that had followed. From high above, far enough above that the individual trees blurred together, Harry stared out at the forest. Harry didn't want to confess and ruin his reputation forever and get everyone angry at him and maybe end up killed by the Dark Lord later. He'd rather be trapped in Hogwarts for six years than face that. That was how he felt. And so it was in fact helpful, a relief, to be able to cling to a single decisive factor, which was that if Harry confessed, Professor Quirrell would go to Azkaban and die there. A catch, a break, a stutter in Harry's breathing. If you phrased it that way, why, you could even pretend to be a hero instead of a coward. Harry lifted his eyes from the Forbidden Forest, looked up at the clear blue Forbidden Sky, stared out the glass panes at the big, bright, burning thing, the fluffy things, the mysterious, endless blue in which they were embedded, that strange, new, unknown place. It actually did help. It helped quite a lot to think that his own troubles were nothing compared to being in Azkaban, that there were people in the world who were really in trouble, and Harry Potter was not one of them. What was he going to do about Azkaban? What was he going to do about Magical Britain? Which side was he on now? In the bright light of day, everything that Albus Dumbledore had said certainly sounded a lot wiser than Professor Quirrell. Better and brighter. More moral. More convenient. Wouldn't it be nice if it were true? And the thing to remember was that Dumbledore believed things because they sounded nice. But Professor Quirrell was the one who was sane. Again, the catch in his breathing. It happened each time he thought of Professor Quirrell. But just because something sounded nice didn't make it wrong either. 
and if the defence professor did have a flaw in his sanity, it was that his outlook on life was too negative. Really? inquired the part of Harry that had read 18 million experimental results about people being too optimistic and overconfident. Professor Quirrell is too pessimistic, so pessimistic that his expectations routinely undershoot reality. Stuff him and put him in a museum, he's unique. Which one of you two planned the perfect crime and then put in all the error margin and fallbacks that ended up saving your butt? Just in case the perfect crime went wrong, hint, hint, his name wasn't Harry Potter. But pessimistic wasn't the correct word to describe Professor Quirrell's problem, if a problem it truly was, and not the superior wisdom of experience. But to Harry, it looked like Professor Quirrell was constantly interpreting everything in the worst possible light. If you handed Professor Quirrell a glass that was 90% full, he'd tell you that the 10% empty part proved that no one really cared about water. That was a very good analogy, now that Harry thought about it. Not all of Magical Britain was like Azkaban. That glass was well over half full. Harry stared up at the bright blue sky. Although, following the analogy, if Azkaban existed, then maybe it did prove that the 90% good part was there for other reasons. People trying to make a show of kindness, as Professor Quirrell had put it. For if they were truly kind, they would not have made Azkaban. They would storm the fortress to tear it down, wouldn't they? Harry stared up at the bright blue sky. If you wanted to be a rationalist, you had to read an awful lot of papers on flaws in human nature, and some of those flaws were innocent, logical failures, and some of them looked a lot darker. Harry stared up at the bright blue sky and thought of the Milgram experiment. Stanley Milgram had done it to investigate the causes of World War II, to try to understand why the citizens of Germany had obeyed Hitler. So he had designed an experiment to investigate obedience, to see if Germans were, for some reason, more liable to obey harmful orders from authority figures. First, he had run a pilot version of his experiment on American subjects as a control, and afterward, he hadn't bothered trying it in Germany. Experimental Apparatus A series of 30 switches set in a horizontal line, with labels starting at 15 volts and going up to 450 volts, with labels for each group of four switches. The first group of four labelled Slight Shock, the sixth group labelled Extreme Intensity Shock, the seventh group labelled Danger, severe shock, and the two last switches left over labelled just X, X, X. And an actor, a confederate of the experimenter, who had appeared to the true subjects to be someone just like them, someone who had answered the same ad for participants in an experiment on learning, and who had lost a rigged lottery and been strapped into a chair along with the electrodes. 
The true experimental subjects had been given a slight shock from the electrodes, just so that they could see that it worked. The true subject had been told that the experiment was on the effects of punishment on learning and memory, and that part of the test was to see if it made a difference what sort of person administered the punishment, and that the person strapped to the chair would try to memorize sets of word pairs, and that each time the learner got one wrong, the teacher was to administer a successively stronger shock. At the 300-volt level, the actor would stop trying to call out answers and begin kicking at the wall, after which the experimenter would instruct the subjects to treat non-answers as wrong answers and continue. At the 315-volt level, the pounding on the wall would be repeated. After that, nothing would be heard. If the subject objected or refused to press a switch, the experimenter, maintaining an impassive demeanor and dressed in a grey lab coat, would say, Please continue. Then, the experiment requires that you continue. Then, it is absolutely essential that you continue. Then, you have no other choice. You must go on. If the fourth prod still didn't work, the experiment halted there. Before running the experiment, Milgram had described the experimental setup and then asked 14 psychology seniors what percentage of subjects they thought would go all the way up to the 450 volt level. What percentage of subjects would press the last of the two switches marked XXX after the victim had stopped responding? The most pessimistic answer had been 3%. The actual number had been 26 out of 40. The subject had sweated, groaned, stuttered, laughed nervously, bitten their lips, dug their fingernails into their flesh, but at the experimenter's prompting, they had, most of them, gone on administering what they believed to be painful, dangerous, possibly lethal electrical shocks, all the way to the end. Harry could hear Professor Quirrell laughing in his mind, the defence professor's voice saying something along the lines of, Why, Mr. Potter, even I had not been so cynical. I knew men would betray their most cherished principles for money and power, but I did not realize that a stern look also sufficed. It was dangerous to try and guess at evolutionary psychology if you weren't a professional evolutionary psychologist. But when Harry had read about the Milgram experiment, the thought had occurred to him that situations like this had probably arisen many times in the ancestral environment, and that most potential ancestors who'd tried to disobey authority were dead. Or that they had, at least, done less well for themselves than the obedient. People thought themselves good and moral, but when push came to shove, some switch flipped in their brain, and it was suddenly a lot harder to heroically defy authority than they thought. Even if you could do it, it wouldn't be easy. 
It wouldn't be some effortless display of heroism. You would tremble. Your voice would break. You would be afraid. Would you be able to defy authority even then? Harry blinked then, because his brain had just made the connection between Milgram's experiment and what Hermione had done on her first day of defense class. She had refused to shoot a fellow student, even when authority had told her that she must. She had trembled and been afraid, but she had still refused. Harry had seen that happen right in front of his own eyes, and he still hadn't made the connection until now. Harry stared down at the reddening horizon. The sun was sinking lower, the sky fading, darkening. Even if most of it was still blue, soon it would turn to night. The gold and red colours of sun and sunset reminded him of forks, and Harry wondered for a moment, if it must be a sad thing to be a phoenix, and call and cry and scream without being heeded. But Fawkes would never give up. As many times as he died, he would always be reborn, for Fawkes was a being of light and fire, and despairing over Azkaban belonged to the darkness just as much as did Azkaban itself. If you were given a glass half empty and half full, then that was the way reality was. That was the truth, and it was so. But you still had a choice of how to feel about it, whether you would despair over the empty half or rejoice in the water that was there. Milgram had tried certain other variations on his test. In the eighteenth experiment, the experimental subject had only needed to call out the test words to the victim strapped into the chair and record the answers while someone else pressed the switches. It was the same apparent suffering, the same frantic pounding followed by silence, but it wasn't you pressing the switch. You just watched it happen and read the questions to the person being tortured. Thirty Seven of forty subjects had continued their participation in that experiment to the end. The 450-volt end marked XXX. And if you were Professor Quirrell, you might have decided to feel cynical about that. But three out of forty subjects had refused to participate all the way to the end. The Hermiones. They did exist in the world. The people who wouldn't fire a simple strike hex at a fellow student, even if the defense professor ordered them to do it. The ones who had sheltered gypsies and Jews and homosexuals in their attics during the Holocaust, and sometimes lost their lives for it. And were those people from some other species than humanity? Did they have some extra gear in their heads, some additional chunk of neural circuitry which lesser mortals did not possess? But that was not likely, given the logic of sexual reproduction which said that the genes for complex machinery would be scrambled beyond repair if they were not universal. Whatever parts Hermione was made from, everyone had those same parts inside them somewhere. Well, 
That was a nice thought, but it wasn't strictly true. There was such a thing as literal brain damage. People could lose genes, and the complex machine could stop working. There were sociopaths and psychopaths, people who lacked the gear to care. Maybe Lord Voldemort had been born like that. Or maybe he had known good and yet still chosen evil. At this point, it didn't matter in the slightest. But a supermajority of the population ought to be capable of learning to do what Hermione and Holocaust resistors did. The people who had been run through the Milgram experiment, who had trembled and sweated and nervously laughed as they went all the way to pressing the switches marked XXX, Many of them had written to thank Milgram afterward for what they had learned about themselves. That, too, was part of the story, the legend of that legendary experiment. The sun had almost sunk below the horizon now, a last golden tip peeking above the faraway tops of trees. Harry looked at it, that tip of sun, his glasses were supposed to be proof against UV, so he ought to be able to look directly at it without damaging his eyes. Harry stared directly at it, that tiny fraction of the light that was not obscured and blocked and hidden, even if it was only three parts out of forty. The other thirty-seven parts were there somewhere. The 7.5% of the glass that was full which proved that people really did care about water, even if that force of caring within themselves was too often defeated. If people truly didn't care, the glass would have been truly empty. If everyone had been like you-know-who inside, secretly, cleverly selfish, there would have been no resistors to the Holocaust at all. Harry looked at the sunset on the second day of the rest of his life, and knew that he had switched sides. Because he couldn't believe in it anymore. He couldn't, really, not after going to Azkaban. He couldn't do what 37 out of 40 people would vote for him to do. Everyone might have inside them what it took to be Hermione, and someday they might learn. But someday wasn't now. Not here, not today, not in the real world. If you were on the side of three out of forty people, then you weren't a political majority, and Professor Quirrell had been right. Harry would not bow his head in submission when that happened. There was a sort of awful appropriateness to it. You shouldn't go to Azkaban and come back having not changed your mind about anything important. So... Is Professor Quirrell right, then? asked Slytherin. Leaving out whether he's good or evil, is he right? Are you, to them, whether they know it or not, their next lord? We'll just leave out the dark part, that's him being cynical again. But is it your intention now to rule? I've got to say that makes even me nervous. Do you think you can be trusted with power? said Gryffindor. Isn't there some sort of rule that people who want power shouldn't have it? Maybe we should make Hermione the ruler instead. 
Do you think you're fit to run a society and not have it collapse into total chaos inside of three weeks flat? said Hufflepuff. Imagine how loudly Mum would scream if she'd heard you'd been elected Prime Minister. Now ask yourself, are you sure she's wrong about that? Actually, said Ravenclaw, I have to point out that all this political stuff sounds overwhelmingly boring. How about if we leave all the electioneering to Draco and stick to science? It's what we're actually good at, and that's been known to improve the human condition too, you know. Slow down, thought Harry at his components. We don't have to decide everything right now. We're allowed to ponder the problem as fully as possible before coming to a solution. The last part of the sun sank below the horizon. It was strange, this feeling of not quite knowing who you were, which side you were on, of having not already made up your mind about something as major as that. There was an unfamiliar sensation of freedom in it. And that reminded him of what Professor Quirrell had said to his last question, which reminded him of Professor Quirrell, which made it hard once more to breathe, started that burning sensation in Harry's throat, sent his thoughts around that loop of the climbing spiral once again. Why was he so sad now, whenever he thought of Professor Quirrell? Harry was used to knowing himself, and he didn't know why he felt so sad. It felt like he'd lost Professor Quirrell forever, lost him in Azkaban. That was how it felt. As surely as if the defense professor had been eaten by Dementors, consumed in the empty voids. Lost him? Why did I lose him? Because he said Avada Kedavra, and there was in fact a perfectly good reason, even though I didn't see it for a couple of hours. Why can't things go back to the way they were? But then, it hadn't been the Avada Kedavra. That might have played a part in irreversibly collapsing a structure of rationalizations and flinches and carefully not thinking about certain things. But it hadn't been the Avara Kedavra that had been the disturbing thing that Harry had seen. What did I see? Harry looked at the fading sky. He had seen Professor Quirrell turn into a hardened criminal while facing the aura, and the apparent change of personalities had been effortless and complete. Another woman had known the defense professor as Jeremy Jaffe. How many different people are you anyway? I cannot say that I bothered keeping count. You couldn't help but wonder whether Professor Quirrell was just one more name on the list. Just one more person that had been turned into, made up in the service of some unguessable goal. Harry would always be wondering now, every time he talked to Professor Quirrell, if it was a mask, and what motive was behind that mask. With every dry smile, Harry would be trying to see what was pulling the levers on the lips. 
Is that how other people will start thinking of me if I get too Slytherin? If I pull off too many plots, will I never be able to smile at anyone again without them wondering what I really mean by it? Maybe there was some way to restore a trust in surface appearances and make a normal human relationship possible again, but Harry couldn't think of what it might be. That was how Harry had lost Professor Quirrell. Not the person, but the... connection. Why did that hurt so much? Why did it feel so lonely now? Surely there were other people, maybe better people, to trust and befriend. Professor McGonagall, Professor Flitwick, Hermione, Draco, not to mention Mum and Dad. It wasn't like Harry was uh, alone. Only... A choking sensation grew in Harry's throat as he understood. Only Professor McGonagall, Professor Flitwick, Hermione, Draco, they all of them sometimes knew things that Harry didn't, but they didn't excel above Harry within his own sphere of power. Such genius as they possessed was not like his genius, and his genius was not like theirs. He might look upon them as peers, but not look up to them as his superiors. None of them had been, none of them could ever be, Harry's mentor. That was who Professor Quirrell had been. That was who Harry had lost. And the manner in which he had lost his first mentor might or might not allow Harry to ever get him back. Maybe some day he would know all Professor Quirrell's hidden purposes and the doubts between them would go away. But even if that seemed possible, it didn't seem very probable. There was a gust of wind outside Hogwarts. It bent the empty trees, rippled the lake whose heart was still unfrozen, made a whispering sound as it slid past the window that looked upon the half-twilight world, and Harry's thoughts wandered outward for a time then returned inward again to the next step of the spiral. Why am I different from the other children my age? If Professor Quirrell's answer to that had been an evasion, then it was a very well-calculated one. Deep enough and complex enough, sufficiently full of suggestions of hidden meaning, to serve as a trap for a Ravenclaw who couldn't be diverted by less. Or maybe Professor Quirrell had meant his answer honestly. Who knew what motive might have pulled that lever on those lips? I will say this much, Mr. Potter. You are already an Oklumens, and I think you will become a perfect Oklumens before long. Identity does not mean, to such as us, what it means to other people. Anyone we can imagine, we can be. And the true difference about you, Mr. Potter, is that you have an unusually good imagination. A playwright must contain his characters. He must be larger than them in order to enact them within his mind. To an actor, or a spy, or a politician, the limit of his own diameter is the limit of who he can pretend to be. 
the limit of which face he may wear as a mask. But for such as you and I, anyone we can imagine we can be in reality and not pretense. While you imagined yourself a child, Mr. Potter, you were a child. Yet there are other existences you could support. Larger existences if you wished. Why are you so free and so great in your circumference when other children your age are small and constrained? Why can you imagine and become selves more adult than a mere child of a playwright should be able to compose? That I do not know, and I must not say what I guess, but what you have, Mr. Potter, is freedom. If that was a snow job, it was one heck of a distracting one. And the still more worrisome thought was that Professor Quirrell hadn't realized how disturbed Harry would be, how wrong that speech would sound to him, how much damage it would do to his trust in Professor Quirrell. There ought to always be one real person who you truly were at the center of everything. Harry stared out at the falling night, the gathering darkness. Right? It was almost bedtime when Hermione heard the scattered intakes of breath and looked up from her copy of Beaubaton, A History, to see the missing boy. The boy who'd been misplaced at lunch that Sunday, whose dinner non-appearance had been accompanied by rumours, and she hadn't believed them because they were completely ridiculous. But she'd felt a little queasiness inside, that he had withdrawn from Hogwarts in order to hunt down Bellatrix Black. Harry! She shrieked. She didn't even realise that she was talking directly to him for the first time in a week, or notice how some other students stared at the sound of her yelling all the way across the Ravenclaw common room. Harry's eyes had already lifted to her. He was already walking toward her, so she stopped halfway out of her chair. A few moments later, Harry was seated across from her, and he was putting away his wand after casting a quieting barrier around them, and an awful lot of Ravenclaws were trying not to look like they were watching. Hey, Harry said, his voice wavered. I, I missed you. You're going to talk to me again now? Hermione nodded. She just nodded. She couldn't think of what to say. She'd missed Harry too, but she was realising, with a guilty sort of feeling, that it might have been a lot worse for him. She had other friends. Harry. It didn't feel fair, sometimes, that Harry talked to only her like that, so that she had to talk to him. But Harry had looked about him like unfair things had been happening to him too. What's been going on? She said. There are all sorts of rumours. There were people saying you'd run off to fight Bellatrix Black. There are people saying you'd run off to join Bellatrix Black. And those rumours had said that Hermione had just made up the thing about the phoenix, and she had yelled that the whole Ravenclaw common room had seen it, 
So then, the next rumour had claimed she'd made up that part too, which was stupidity of such an inconceivable level that it left her completely flabbergasted. I can't talk about it, Harry said in a bare whisper. Can't talk about a lot of it. I wish I could tell you everything. His voice wavered. But I can't. I guess, if it helps or anything, I'm not going to lunch with Professor Quirrell anymore. Harry put his hands over his face then, covering his eyes. Hermione felt the queasy feeling all through her stomach. Are you crying? said Hermione. Yeah, said Harry, his voice sounding a little breathy. I don't want anyone else to see. There was a little silence. Hermione wanted to help, but she didn't know what to do about a boy crying, and she didn't know what was happening. She felt like huge things were happening around her. Uh, no, around Harry. And if she knew what they were, she would probably be scared, or alarmed, or something, but she didn't know anything. Did Professor Quirrell do something wrong? She said at last. That's not why I can't go to lunch with him any more, Harry said, still in that bare whisper with his hands pressed over his eyes. That was the headmaster's decision. B but yeah, Professor Quirrell said some things to me that made me trust him uh, less, I guess. Harry's voice sounded very shaky. I'm feeling kind of alone right now. Hermione put her hand on her cheek where Forks had touched her yesterday. She'd kept thinking about that touch over and over, maybe because she wanted it to be important, to mean something to her. Is there any way I can help? She said. I want to do something normal, Harry said from behind his hands. Something very normal for first-year Hogwarts students. Something eleven-year-olds and twelve-year-olds like us are supposed to do. Like play a game of exploding snap or something. I don't suppose you have the cards or know the rules or anything like that. Um, I don't know the rules, actually, said Hermione. I know they explode. I don't suppose. Gobstones, said Harry. Don't know the rules and they spit on you. Those are boy games, Harry. There was a pause. Harry ground his hands against his face to wipe it and then took his hands away. And then he was looking at her, looking a little helpless. Well, Harry said, what do wizards and witches our age do when they play? You know, the kind of pointless, uh, silly games we're supposed to play at this age. Hopscotch? said Hermione. Jump rope, unicorn attack, I, I don't know, I read books. Harry started laughing, and Hermione started giggling along with him, even though she didn't know quite why, but it was funny. <laughs> I guess that helped a little, said Harry. Actually, I think it helped more than playing gobstones for an hour could have possibly helped, so uh, thank you for being you. 
And no matter what, I'm not having anyone obliviate everything I know about calculus. <laughs> I'd sooner die. What? said Hermione. Why, why would you ever want to do that? Harry stood up from the table, and there was a rush of restored background noise as his rise broke the quieting charm. I'm a tad sleepy, so I'm going off to bed, Harry said. Now his voice was ordinary and wry. I've got some lost time to make up for, but I'll see you at breakfast and then at Herbology, if that's all right. Not to mention, it wouldn't be fair to dump all my depression on you. Good night, Hermione. Good night, Harry, she said, feeling very confused and alarmed. Pleasant dreams? Harry stumbled a little as she said that, and then he continued on toward the stairs that led to the first-year boys' dorms. Harry turned the quieting charm all the way up on the head of his bedboard, so that he wouldn't wake anyone else up if he screamed. Set his alarm to wake him up for breakfast, if he wasn't already up by that hour, if indeed he slept at all. Got into bed. Laid down. Felt the lump beneath his pillow. Harry stared up at the canopy above his head. Hissed under his breath. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. It took a few seconds before Harry could muster the heart to sit up in bed, pull the blanket over himself and his pillow to obscure the deed from the other boys, cast a low-intensity lumos, and see what was under his pillow. There was a parchment and a deck of playing cards. The parchment read, A little bird told me that Dumbledore has shut the door of your cage. I must admit on this occasion that Dumbledore may have a point. Bellatrix Black is loosed upon the world once more, and that is not good news for any good person. If I stood in Dumbledore's place, I might well do the same. But, just in case, the Salem Witches Institute in America accepts boys as well, despite the name. They are good people, and would protect you even from Dumbledore, if you needed it. Britain holds that you need Dumbledore's permission to emigrate to Magical America, but Magical America disagrees. So, in the final extremity, get outside the wards of Hogwarts and tear in half the King of Hearts from this deck of cards. That you should resort to it only in the final extremity goes without saying. Be well, Harry Potter. Santa Claus. Harry stared down at the back of cards. It couldn't take him anywhere else. Not right now. Portkeys didn't work here. But he still felt unnerved about the prospect of picking it up, even to hide it inside his trunk. Well... He'd already picked up the parchment, which could just have easily been enchanted with a trap, if a trap was involved. But still. Wingardium Leviosa, Harry whispered, and hovered the packet of cards to lie next to him where his alarm clock rested in a pocket of the headboard. He'd deal with it tomorrow. 
And then Harry lay back in bed and closed his eyes to dream without any phoenix to protect him, and pay his reckoning. He came awake with a gasp of horror, not a scream. He had yet to scream this night, but his blanket was all tangled around him from where his sleeping form had jerked as he dreamed of running, trying to get away from the gaps in space that were pursuing him through a corridor of metal lit by dim gaslight. An endlessly long corridor of metal lit by dim gaslight. And he hadn't known, in the dream, that touching those voids meant he would die horribly and leave his still-breathing body empty behind him. All he'd known was that he had to run and run and run from the wounds in the world sliding after him. Harry started to cry again. It wasn't for the horror of the chase. It was that he'd run away while someone behind him was screaming for help screaming for him to come back and save her, help her. She was being eaten, she was going to die, and in the dream, Harry had run away instead of helping her. <laughs> the voice came in a scream from behind the metal door. <laughs> Why had Fawkes ever rested on his shoulder? He'd walked away. Fawkes should hate him. Fawkes should hate Dumbledore. He'd walked away. Fawkes should hate everyone. The boy wasn't awake. Wasn't dreaming. His thoughts were jumbled and confused in the shadowlands that bordered sleep and waking unprotected by the safety rails that his aware mind imposed on itself, the careful rules and senses. In that shadowland, his brain had woken up enough to think, but something else was too sleepy to act. His thoughts ran free and wild, unconstrained by his self-concept, his waking self's ideals of what he shouldn't think. That was the freedom of his brain's dreams as his self-concept slept, free to repeat over and over Harry's new worst nightmare. alongside the self-loathing, a terrible, hot wrath, icy cold hatred for the world which had done that to her, for himself, and in his half-awake state, Harry fantasized escapes, fantasized ways out of the moral dilemma. He imagined himself hovering above the vast triangular horror of Azkaban and whispering an incantation unlike any syllables that had ever been heard before on Earth. 
whispers that echoed all the way across the sky and were heard on the other side of the world, and there was a blast of silver Patronus fire, like a nuclear explosion that tore apart all the Dementors in an instant and ripped apart the metal walls of Azkaban, shattered the long corridors and all the dim orange lights. And then... A moment later, his brain remembered that there were people in there, and rewrote the half-dream fantasy to show all the prisoners laughing as they flew away in flocks from the burning wreck of Azkaban, the silver light restoring the flesh to their limbs as they flew, and Harry started crying harder into his pillow, because he couldn't do it, because he wasn't God. He had sworn upon his life and magic and his art as a rationalist. He had sworn by all he held sacred and all his happy memories. He'd given his oath, so now he had to do something. Had to do something. Had to do something. Maybe it was pointless. Maybe trying to follow rules was pointless. Maybe you just burned down Azkaban, however. And in fact, he had sworn he'd do it. So now that was what he had to do. He'd just do whatever it took to get rid of Azkaban. That was all. If that meant ruling Britain, fine. If that meant finding a spell to whisper that would echo all across the sky, whatever. The important thing was to destroy Azkaban. That was the side he was on. That was who he was. So, there. It was done. His waking mind would have demanded a lot more details before accepting that as an answer, but in his half-dreaming state it felt like enough of a resolution to let his tired mind fall truly asleep again, and dream the next nightmare. Final Aftermath She came awake with a gasp of horror, a disruption of her breathing that left her feeling deprived of air and yet her lungs didn't move. She woke up with an unvoiced scream on her lips and no words, uh, no words came forth for she could not understand what she had seen. She could not understand what she had seen. It was too large for her to encompass and still taking shape. She could not put words to that formless shape and so she could not discharge it, could not discharge it and become innocent and unknowing once more. What time is it? she whispered. Her golden jeweled alarm clock, the beautiful and magical and expensive alarm clock that the headmaster had given her as a gift upon her employment at Hogwarts, whispered back. Around two in the morning, go back to sleep. Her sheets were soaked in sweat, her nightclothes soaked in sweat. She took her wand from beside the pillow and cleaned herself up before she tried to go back to sleep. She tried to go back to sleep, and eventually succeeded. Sybil Trelawney went back to sleep.